Welcome back, everybody. We got a special episode today with our one and only Sam Hampson. We are very excited to get into this one. We've got Patrick interviewing Sam, and we're going to learn more about her background and how she developed a new relationship with alcohol. We're so lucky to have Sam as a co-host. She provides such great insight for our gray area drinkers. We're all smarter listening to Sam. Let's dive in. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I was really excited when we decided to share our personal stories on here. And because I know, you know, obviously <laughs> I know my story and um, and I know a lot of Robbie's, you know, <laughs> I've, I've heard limited bits and pieces of yours, Sam. I mean, you and I have been friends for a few years now. We've worked together professionally and I know a little bit about your background and your story from what you've shared on this podcast and but for the most part, our relationship has been professional. <laughs> Usually when we're mm-hmm. together, we're talking about other people. So I'm excited yeah. to hear a little bit more about you today. As far back as you can remember, when alcohol was introduced into your life, what your family system looked like, where did you grow up, how old were you when you had your first drink, how old were you when you thought about having your first drink? Take us back, mm-hmm. Sam. Take us all the way back. So... I'll try to keep a, a long story short. I grew up in the most, for the most part, in Europe. Um, I was born in France. I have Scottish parents, and lived in France for about two years. Uh, moved to England, lived there for about uh, three years, and then I grew up for the most part during childhood in France from age six until about eleven or twelve. But when I moved to uh, the U.S. in that kind of cultural space, so in a Scottish household. Um, and in a European country, um, alcohol is readily available at pretty much every meal other than breakfast. And it's a very normal thing for, um, like to witness like business lunches and things like that involve wine and it's, it's everywhere. And I think that one of the the questions that I always have a hard time with was, you know, when was your first drink or when did you first try alcohol? Because alcohol was always there and I was never told that I couldn't try it. I was always told like, go ahead, like with a smirk, like you're going to hate it. And I did. So periodically throughout childhood, I'd be like, can I have a sip? And my dad would be like, sure. And I'd have a sip of beer and be like, that's so gross. And he'd be like, yep. So back to apple juice. You know, and it was it was never followed up with what I hear very commonly, which is it's a an acquired taste or you'll learn to like it. It was never followed up with some type of expectation that that would change. It was just if you don't like it, leave it alone. Let's test it out. Yeah. Um, and then kind of throughout my teenage years, I really wasn't my sibling we were very close in age and um he was getting into quite a bit of trouble and we went to the same school and so I was really intentional about creating a friend group outside of that high school and so I started making friends at different high schools so that I wouldn't kind of be associated with the same people or because we were so close in age it would be like I didn't want to be at the same parties as him things like that so I started hanging out with like really healthy group of kids. They were like super into like sports, church, you know, whatever else um, people were doing other than drinking until about age 16. Um, I was 16 as a senior in high school and 
I, at that point, at senior year, I did start drinking with friends. I, from the very beginning, it was one of those things where we could only go to whoever's parents' house felt like taking on the liability of having drunk teenagers at their house. Like my parents were not those parents. They were like, I absolutely will never be responsible for another child going home and saying, oh yeah, Sam's mom and dad let me drink. Like that's never going to happen in this house. We make our own decisions about what happens with our kids, but we're not going to make that decision for other parents. So I was never really allowed to drink like with friends at our house. I was allowed to have like a single drink with my parents, I think at that age. Um, and mostly because that's what would be typical in mm-hmm. Scotland, that if you go to a restaurant and you're under 18, as long as you're with your parents and they're clearly okay with you ordering it, you can drink kind of thing. Those house parties that I remember, um, were always like right down the street, like in the same neighborhood kind of thing. But from the get go, I was making pretty bad decisions anytime I was drinking. And I just mean things that I wouldn't do if I had been sober. And it could be... Tell us about those things, Sam. It would be like driving home. Like, not okay. Didn't feel okay at the time. It's not like looking back as an adult, I'm like, that was not okay. I immediately felt like it wasn't okay. But I just didn't have the decision-making process to do otherwise. So I drive home and like, literally like panic in the morning come downstairs to the garage and like check that like I hadn't like hit something (laughs) in the garage. And I think like at that age, like my friends thought stuff like that was like funny. You know what I mean? Like they kind of were like, Oh, that was so crazy. Like I just, that worried me. I was a good kid. Like I freaked me out. I was the same way. I really didn't like those types of feelings. I really, I remember pretty distinctly on prom night. One of the guys that we were with got super drunk and like pretty much looked like comatose, like just non-responsive and that, and all the guys like threw him in the shower, cold water all over him. And I'm like, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to do that. Like, this is not what's supposed to be <laughs> happening. Up, I'm a and I'm like, just call an ambulance. Like just call an ambulance. Someone call an ambulance. And it was like, no, he's fine. They're like shoving bread down his throat. Like just eat something. And like that terrified me. Like I'm like, he could Pouring die. Milk on him. Things like that were not fun to me. They were not, I immediately like felt sober and super worried and freaked out. And next time someone be like, hey, let's go to so-and-so's house. I'd be like, "Mm, no, thanks. So I think from the get-go, like getting drunk was associated with a lot of like bad things could happen. And when I went to college, I think the piece probably that I didn't mention that's important is one of the biggest factors that changed, that started to have me ask a lot of different questions was my fascination with some of the courses that I was taking at school. I went to College of Charleston and I majored in psychology, but it was, I really heavily focused on neuroscience and was fascinated from the get-go. And there was not... It was this place where I felt like we were looking at things very scientifically. We were looking at things that were purely based on data without judgment or kind of subjective interpretation. And it was different than kind of the rest of the world where I feel like everyone kind of knows the impact of alcohol or substances, but they kind of either don't talk about it or they sugarcoat it or they excuse it. And this was a place where for the first time ever, my experiences were connecting with what someone was telling me was happening in my brain. And 
really putting some serious kind of research behind it and going, this is bad. It's all bad. Brain cells dying. <laughs> when you got introduced to neuroscience, was that, was, was alcohol use one of the things that, you know, piqued your interest the most in that field? Um, or was it just neuroscience? It was in neuroscience general? in general. And I was actually really obsessed with cocaine at the time. I didn't ever do cocaine, but hmm. the professor that I had was a researcher as well. At all of the professors at College of Charleston have PhDs that teach psychology. And so most of them are also doing research and talk about a lot of that in the courses alongside the material, which is super neat. And this guy was doing trials with uh, rhesus monkeys and cocaine and looking at what was happening to their receptors, looking at withdrawal processes, tolerance, all of those sorts of things. And so after kind of the initial obsession with neuroscience, I then went on to take like the neurobiology of substance use and it was everything. It wasn't just alcohol. It was any kind of mind mood or mind altering substance and how it worked in the receptors and then how does that show up behaviorally? And a lot of it started to really match what I had been experiencing and none of it sounded good. And that was really polar opposite from what was happening in my social life, which is drinking's great. But it seems like that that kind of matches up to what, what you were actually seeing in your social life, which was drinking wasn't great. Right. Yeah, I was always like, why does this make me nervous? And it like makes you all feel like you're having fun. Like, isn't this stuff super scary? <laughs> like, like, I don't want to drive home. I don't want to ugly cry. I don't want to fight with Chris. Like, I, I just didn't get what part of it was fun other than like the 25 minutes of like intoxication and like being on the dance floor. The rest of it to me was all like very ick. Um, and I think the, the, what I was studying was helping me piece together why some of it felt the way it felt and just how it worked. Like I was just fascinated with how substances worked on the brain. When you started taking these courses at College of Charleston, you know, decided that you wanted to study psychology and neuroscience. Did you know that you were going to become a therapist? I knew I was going to become a therapist. I did not at that point, and for many years, did not think I would end up in addictions or substance use. Um, I just wanted what? to be a therapist. I wanted to be in private practice, wanted to be a therapist, wanted like the velvet chair, um, and wanted to help others and had a very naive view of that at that point of being like, I'm just a friend that everyone talks to. Like, that's why I thought I wanted to be a therapist. But then as I got really fascinated with the science and all that, um, just got deeper into kind of studying it. I actually thought the opposite. I thought that I really wanted to stay away from substance use because it was active in my family system at the time. And I just was like, I want more distance from that, not to be closer to it. So it was something I kind of rejected initially and did a bunch of internships with like kids and like social and emotional programs and kind of general mental health stuff before I ever figured out that I was like obsessed with neuroscience and addiction. Do you think that one of the things that drew you into this part of the field was the disconnect between what the science was telling you and what people's subjective experience was like? Yeah. You know, or that you were, that you were seeing, like you were seeing all these negative consequences and everybody loving it. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, hold on. 
Yeah, I do. I think that that's um, fascinating. I think that any human behavior that doesn't make sense on the surface is fascinating. So when I know that this thing's bad and bad things happen when you do it, like cancer, killing brain cells, DUIs, et cetera, right? Liver disease. But people continue to do it and actually are really adamant that they will continue to do it and that it has a place in their life. Um, That's strange. And yeah, it really fascinated me, but I, I really... I did. I gained some distance from it because of what was going on in my family system for quite a while. And then my second internship when I was in grad school mentioned that I was really young when I was graduating high school. And so I was very young also entering a master's degree. I really just wanted to prove myself. And I wanted to prove that just because I was young didn't mean I couldn't like do crisis work or I couldn't do hard work or whatever. And so my second internship, uh, I took a medical social work internship in the emergency department of one of the biggest hospitals in South Carolina. And I freaking loved it. I worked 12 hour shifts in the ER and did any um, psych patient that came in, anyone that came into the emergency room that was tagged as like psych or needing a social work consult, I would go and do the assessment. And what I found time and time again was obviously a lot of people were severely mentally ill or substance involved who would come in unstable. But I used to get in trouble (laughs) because I would spend a ton of time in critical care. And my supervisor used to be like, can you like that? You're going on hour three on one case. Like this is the emergency room. There's 17 freaking patients. Yeah, I'm sitting there and (laughs) in critical care, it was always an overdose patient. And it was always someone who was coming back around after having been given Narcan um, with uh, overdose withdrawal drug. And I just wanted to have that window of opportunity to help them go to treatment and to get better and to never end up back in the ER with the same issue again. And I absolutely fell in love with that process and have not stopped working in addictions since. Um, I just moved over to to the treatment side. Yeah, I feel like when you see that level of severity, you can't, it's almost impossible not to. Mm -hmm. Especially with that disconnect in regards to public information and and health Mm. in regards to substance use. But I think one of the things that I look back now and I really missed because I just didn't have the lens for it or I wasn't looking for it was alcohol involved incidents. And that being everything from if you looked around the emergency department, you could probably tag 75% of the people in there with also having alcohol involvement that night or that day. And that's everything from car crashes to suicide attempts under, you know, intoxication, um, gunshot wounds, hunting accidents. Guy dropping a steak knife Mm -hmm. and it going through his foot, Mm -hmm. you know. And even just domestic altercations. I mean, absolutely everything. And um, not to mention, obviously, the entire kind of sexual assault unit and what's happening there. But that was a lens I didn't have at the time. And looking back, I'm like that was probably the perfect place to see a lot of what was going on with alcohol in the community on a daily basis. But I just wasn't looking for it (laughs) at that age or at that time of my career. So back to, back to what you were talking about when we first started talking in the beginning of this episode, 
and when you really started to take a closer look at, at your your own alcohol use. So you drank a little bit in high school, scared the shit mm-hmm. out of you. Then it's like you get into college and you're studying this stuff. Were you continuing to experiment with alcohol during this time? Or is, is that kind of when you really started to take a, a, a closer look at your own drinking? Like, what was your relationship like with alcohol while you were studying psychology and studying and, and studying neuroscience? Yeah. Were you putting two and two together Very there? Very quickly. Um, I did not have a ton of opportunity. I had a couple of uh, natural interventions and consequences that helped along the way. So my freshman year, first semester of my freshman year, the night before Halloween, not didn't even get to go out on Halloween. Um, I got alcohol poisoning and that changed a lot for me because the, just how horrible of a toll that can take on your body was very scary to me. I hadn't remembered it. I didn't feel like I chose it. You know, it's not like I went out with the intention to get blackout, alcohol poisoning, that sort of thing. And I kept trying to make sense of it and looking at things like, well, it's because I drank gin or like it's because we played beer pong too early or it's because and my roommate's older sister was there, thank God, and probably like saved my life that night. And she was like, it's because you drank too much. And I was like, huh, that's interesting information. Like it's not about what you drink or what order or that you didn't eat spaghetti first or that you didn't eat pizza at the end of the night or whatever. It's because you drank too much. And that really helped me. And I remember one other incident that happened a couple of weeks later after I'd said, I'm not going to drink like that again, blah, blah, blah. And I was a very good student. So I had 8 a.m. classes and just kidding. That was because I wanted to go to the beach after. Um, (laughs) But I showed up at an 8 a.m. class with my Cougars baseball cap on, which I did quite frequently. And my Spanish professor called me out in Spanish and was like, don't show up to my class hungover again. And I'll never forget that. Public shaming. Ever. In Spanish. Um, And I was like, I was like, me? Like, you're talking to me? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, got it. And he was like, please leave. (laughs) Wow. And that, that was tough. But those two things happened very close together. And they also happened right around the time that I was starting to learn about things like continued use despite negative consequences of what's happening to your brain and decreased inhibitions and loss of motor control. And it just all started to fit. And then, like I've mentioned before on the podcast, there are just, there were a lot of things that I really liked doing that alcohol prevented me from doing I liked going rock climbing I liked going to the beach early in the morning I liked going to yoga and um and I liked not arguing with my boyfriend and we did that a lot when we were drinking this little confrontation by your Spanish (laughs) professor like I'm, I'm fascinated with this do you, do you think that that, like, had a profound impact on you at that point? Like, because, and, and this is my, my you know, clinical mind speaking here. It's like you go out night before Halloween, you get alcohol poisoning. You're like, never going to do that again. Two weeks later, you're hungover in this Spanish class, and this guy lets you have it. Like, do you think of that, you know, and tell me if I'm digging too deep here, but, like, do you feel like that could have been like an intervention to where there was a chance that if something like that didn't happen, that you would have continued to drink the way that, that you were drinking. Like, I mean, do you feel like, yeah, I think I had to have some consequences that you could develop, develop a disorder. Oh yeah. I think that was in you. Yeah. 
Yeah. I do. I think that um, I was fortunate to get a couple of pretty serious consequences very quickly. And I'm also very fortunate. I should have been in the hospital. I should have been. That incident with alcohol poisoning should have been worse, could have been worse, et cetera, et cetera. Not to mention the risks of being a young female in a city, not just a college campus, right? Like there's that all freaked me out. But the calling out by the professor, I think what it did was... We talked about this in another episode, and I found this to be like super fascinating. I thought that I was drinking the way that other people around me were drinking, and I would argue would have argued at the time that everyone was hungover in their eight a.m. They weren't, and the fact that I thought that was allowing me to continue drinking the way that I was drinking, or I thought it was okay, I thought it was normal, I thought it was expected. And the reality was most people in my 8 a.m. were not hungover. Most people were not drinking to the degree that me and my friends were drinking from Thursday to Sunday. That is such a dangerous thought where we overestimate how much the people around us are drinking because then we either try to match it or we try to or we think ours is okay or whatever. Normalizes it. And when he was like, basically, like, I don't tolerate you like reeking of alcohol and like having a baseball cap on like sleep I was like at the back of the class too I failed to mention my head was like against the wall when he was basically like yeah I don't have to put up with that like there was a little bit of a parental kind of intervention there of being like you don't get to do that in my class and I don't have to yeah like I don't have to deal with your drinking just because you're you think it's normal or because you wanted to do what you wanted to do last night great that doesn't mean you get to sit in my class and look like that I do think that there was the potential there for things to escalate or for me to encounter other consequences. I am very confident that I would have encountered other consequences. My fiance and I now joke, looking back, there are times that we should have been arrested for public intoxication, for the way that we were arguing on King Street in Charleston, like the (laughs) the drama, like just the outright shit show. and again, we thought that that's kind of what everyone was doing. And it's it's not. Not everyone's drinking like you're drinking. You don't have to drink as much as you're drinking. And sometimes it just takes someone being like, hey, that's not cool or welcome here. Thank God they didn't have Instagram back oh then. You guys might have gone viral. Can you imagine? Yeah. Or like, some, like, can you, like things didn't go viral back then, I feel like. But if someone had like taken a picture of me and been like, college girl 8 a.m class like so embarrassing but Mm -hmm. when I think back to when I was drinking there were so many opportunities for people to be like your behavior shameful (laughs) because it was it was so outside of my value system so when did the big shift happen like when was it after that was it here's the thing when when did you really say hold on I, I gotta I gotta take a really good look at this uh I don't know and I, I, I think about this a lot, but I want to say that there might be a little bit of a difference between like my story in this sense and maybe like what I've heard from others. It, it was never a one time big decision. It was just a bunch of little yeah. ones. There was never this moment where I was like, it's clear now I have to stop drinking. It was just that day. I went home from class and I was hungover and I slept the rest of the day. And then I woke up at like four and got a bagel and like did what I thought college students were doing. And 
the next day I didn't drink. And then uh, when my friends were going out that weekend, I didn't want to go. And then the following week when they were going to a basketball game, I went, but I didn't drink. Um, and it was just a bunch of little decisions and things improved, um, dramatically, like even like my boyfriend at the time kept drinking, but if I didn't drink and we went out together, we still wouldn't argue because we both weren't shit faced. And Mm -hmm. so I just started to see some of the benefit of removing it. And yeah, it was just a bunch of little decisions on a daily basis from that point forward. Was that happening consciously or was, or did that just kind of how it played out? I think it's kind of how it played out. I, again, I had some natural intervention there because after the alcohol poisoning, I don't think whether it was uh, psychologically or was it, whether it was physiologically, I don't know, but my body did not receive alcohol the same way after that and still hasn't to this day. Um, after that point, there were several times when this is why I say it was a daily decision, not a one-time event. There were several times where I was like, Oh, well I'll just go out and have like two or three, but I definitely won't have more than three. And after I got alcohol poisoning, it didn't matter whether I had half of a beer or 20 beers, I would get a violent hangover. I would become very ill the next day. So I could literally go out and try to limit myself and think that that was going to help. And I would have a beer, maybe two, and I would still get the same amount of hungover the next day as I would if I had been blackout. And that was definitely not worth it because one or two beers worth of intoxication for that kind of hangover. I was like, hell no. (laughs) No thanks. So that helped. Um, and that was when I started to see it as like, my body is rejecting this thing. Like it, my body does not want this at all. And it knows that it's not healthy for me and I'm just going to start listening. And I think I shared this in the women's episode with, uh, Robbie's wife, the, the funny thing is two years later when I looked back, it actually had nothing to do with alcohol poisoning. It was the birth control that I was on mixed with alcohol made me very sick, which makes way more sense that half of a beer would have the same kind of impact. But, um, either way, my belief at the time was that my body was rejecting alcohol. And so I stopped putting alcohol in my body. So is that, is that when you took the two year break? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How old were you at that point? Hmm. And was that post master's degree or was that during that time when? Oh no, that was in college. I was young. Um, I don't think I was even drinking. I think after there was a, there was a, there was a huge slowdown. So like throughout college, I barely drank anymore, but it wasn't like a full two years of no alcohol. The full two years of no alcohol came I want to say like right after I turned 21 prior to that like I remember my 21st birthday was the first time I had drank in months um so there were there was a huge slowdown I wasn't drinking a lot at all during college maybe monthly if that like one night per month um and then after my 21st birthday Chris came back from deployment and we went on a trip and, um, I did kind of the same thing again. We were on a cruise. I drank too much rum, ruined like two days worth of the cruise and I was done. I was like, that's enough. 
because I didn't even get to remember so that was like that, that was I it. wasn't getting to remember the fun that I was having while I was intoxicated the quote-unquote fun I just remembered how violently ill I would get um so after that I guess so yeah 21 to 23 or 24 even is that difficult for you yeah it was I think it gave me a lot of perspective wow. on what people go through. I I feel like I only have half of the story. Like I feel like people who have to stop drinking because they truly have a substance use disorder kind of on the severe end of the spectrum. They have so much more to deal with than I had to deal with, but I felt like I got a little bit of a piece of that puzzle and just learning what it looked like to have friends not want to go out with you anymore. Or well, let me know when you're like drinking again and we can go out or, um, kind of scoffing at you if you were like, oh, I don't, I don't actually drink or I don't, I'm ordering a Sprite or whatever. People would be like, you can, ha you can have one, right? I would hear that a lot. How did you kind of frame that with your friends from like a language perspective? Was it, I don't drink, I'm not drinking right now, I'm taking a break? Yeah, I don't drink, it makes me really sick. And that seemed to, I had to try a lot of different phrases before because what I wanted was for one phrase to work without follow-up questions or without pushes, mm -hmm. right? I didn't want the second offer. I could usually turn down a drink the first time, but when people would be like, come on, you can have one, you can whatever. Sometimes if it was someone I wasn't close with and I just didn't want to share the whole thing, I would order a drink and just not drink it. Like I, that's what you wanted was for me to order a beer there. I ordered a beer and I'm going to drink my water. God. Like, because that's about you. Right. And I had to try out a lot of different things. I, I said things like, I don't drink. I said things like, I'm allergic to alcohol. Oh, I'm actually not drinking right now. I'm not drinking tonight. I'm going to DD. Like, there was a lot of different variations of it. But the one thing that I felt like people stopped questioning was, oh, I, I don't drink alcohol. It makes me really sick. Damn, that sucks. I know. Period. The same as when I pee tell people I'm allergic to crab and lobster. Oh, shit. Like, that's oh, damn, sucks. me too. Bottoms up. Yeah. Like, you know. And they're like, even one? And I'm like, yeah. I mean, it's like, at this point, it feels like an allergy. If I have one crab leg, I'm just going to be sick too. Like, I'm allergic. And so when I told people it would make me sick, they would be like, oh, damn, that sucks. So you don't ever drink? Not unless I want to get sick. And so I think at that point, it helped me even see it as more of a dietary restriction than it was like a lifestyle choice. But it was really yeah. hurtful. There were a lot of times where people would, you know, I would have friends call and be like, hey, do you want to grab a glass of wine after work? And I would be like, hey, like, I'm totally good to get together. I'm not um, drinking. Would you want to go to like Starbucks or something? And they'd be like, no, it's cool. Like, I'll catch you next <laughs> nope. week. Oh, <laughs> so either you really want just a glass kidding. of wine, you want someone to just go have one with you, or like we are not actually like really friends <laughs> and you don't really want to catch up and hear what I've had going on. But I think to keep in context during those two years, alcohol did not have a place in my life, even time wise, because I was in school full time doing a master's degree. I had a full-time internship that I had to be at to gain clinical experience. And I also had to, uh, like, eat. So I had a job um, that I had to work for money. And I didn't have time to drink. 
What were some of the positive consequences during those two years that you were conscious of in terms of removing alcohol from your life? I think I just learned that, like, I... Uh, that it was okay, that I didn't enjoy it the way that other people did and that that didn't make me whack, which is what I heard a lot of time. I don't know if that was just the word of the year back then, but I would be like, oh, I don't so drink. Whack. And they'd be like, man, you're whack. That's so mean. <laughs> so I got to learn that I wasn't super whack just because I didn't drink. Um, and I kind of just was able to accept some of the pieces that were like, yeah, like my journey is a little different than the people around me. Um, I also grew up in the South. So everyone I knew were like having their second baby and they had been married for a couple of years. And I was not, I was like getting my degree and working through stuff. And I think one of the biggest things that I learned was that I could have fun without alcohol and that I could actually live without it. And that was important for me because it felt like something in the beginning, it felt like something that I didn't get to do that other people got to do without consequence. And that I was, that just sucked for me. And throughout the experience, I got to learn like, no, I could totally live without alcohol. And I don't really feel like I'm missing a whole lot. Like my bill at a restaurant is way less than everyone else's. Mm -hmm. I can drive, which is something I like to do. Cause I just don't want to stay out as late as other people. I can go to all of the same things and just not drink. Like I don't, I had made up a lot about, especially being in Charleston with all the rooftop bars and all the cute things that like, you know, as a college student, you, you want to feel like more of a grown up than even a college student. So you're like, we're going to go to the like cute adult bars instead of the like party bars. And I would be like, Oh, what's the point in that if I can't have a cocktail? And then I would just start going anyway and drinking other things and just learning that like, I could have fun. It was fine. I mean, I've mentioned before on the podcast, went to a bachelorette party, totally sober and danced like way more like danced on the bar with the girls and like did all that. And it just wasn't that serious. I w just was not missing out. You introduced alcohol back into your life. Mm -hmm. So after that, what, what, did, what did that look like? How did that decision come about? What does it look like since? It was very slow. So like I mentioned, it was very centered around like very intentional. Do I actually like alcohol? I almost looked at it as like trying like new like food of like I'll try it one time and if I don't like it, I'm probably not going to have it again. And um, I'll figure out kind of what parts of my day this fits in. Like by this point, everyone had kind of learned like what their adult drinking looked like, but I had not been drinking for two years. So I didn't know those things. I had never like been like a day drinker or done like brunch mimosas or and so I would try some of those things and be like nope that doesn't work for me like one mimosa at brunch and I just want to nap all afternoon like that's not it I gotta clean like I got things to do <laughs> so it was kind of like situation by situation and I was just really careful that if I felt like this was a situation I needed to drink in did I really want to go and was I prepared to do it without alcohol and if the answer was no, then I didn't involve myself in those things until I felt ready. Um, until I was confident I could go in and not drink or confident that I could take it or leave it. Um, until I stopped obsessing over whether there would be like alcohol there or not. And then it just became more about like, what do I like? And only drinking the things that I liked when I felt like doing it. And I try not to make this is really contrary to what I advise to my clients who have substance use disorder. Like 
I would really try not to plan ahead. So where a lot of people will be like, you have to have a plan or you're going to get caught off guard and you need to know what you're going to order when you get to the restaurant. I really tried because I had been involved in so much yoga practice and mindfulness. I tried the opposite where when I'm at the restaurant, if there's a cocktail that catches my eye that I want to try, then I'm going to try it. And if there's not, I'm not going to scour the drink list for something else I could drink. I'm just going to order sparkling Mm -hmm. water. Like, and so it just trying to remove some of the obsession with what it was supposed to look like. Do you think that, and and I'm going to go back to your neuroscience background. Like, do do you think that your ability to be more mindful around that and, and your power over choice when it comes to alcohol, um, had to do with the fact that, you know, your prefrontal cortex was a little bit older and more <laughs> developed at that point and you having that two yeah. year break. Absolutely. I think the, I think yoga practice helps a lot, right? Cause you get to just be kind of an observer, observer of your thoughts rather than kind of judging them. Um, which is mm-hmm. a lot of what I did when I was younger. There was a lot of shoulds happening instead of like independent thought. Um, a lot of like rules instead of like, what do I want though? Which could be totally different. Um, my prefrontal cortex was a lot healthier in a lot of ways. I had done a lot of my own work around some family system stuff. I had really involved myself in exercise, practicing self care because I was doing so much in the field. My relationship had improved dramatically. Um, learning some of those, like carving out some of those new neural pathways just to learn how to communicate and feel confident in communicating, even if it was, oh, I don't want to drink, thanks for offering, Um, or I don't feel like going out tonight instead of being like, oh, but I should. Um, I just think that there was so much more opportunity for me to build like true self-worth and identity, and I always felt so much more empowered when I was being my own person. It wasn't fun. Like sometimes it was really lonely and it wasn't always glamorous, but I really felt more like myself and more empowered when I dressed the way that I wanted to dress, which was never like anyone that I was around. When I ate or drank the things that I wanted, when I didn't care that other people didn't like the same things that I liked. And alcohol was a big part of that of like I just don't drink like other people I also just don't dress like other people I also don't look like other people not from the U.S. I don't have the same body type as like most people like there was just a lot of things where I was starting to kind of really be okay with like I'm just not like other people and that's fine and just being able to stand in that how does your relationship with alcohol now map on to your professional career is there any disconnect there with working with people with substance use disorders and yeah I think in the beginning I had a lot of like survivor's guilt is the best way I know how to describe it like I almost felt guilty that I could <laughs> drink and other people I can drink and couldn't. you can't nanny nanny boo boo literally <laughs> and when people asked me like are you sober are you in recovery I would feel like a fraud of an addictions therapist if I said oh no I actually do drink like and so that took a lot of supervision and work um because like a cancer doctor doesn't feel guilty for not also having cancer. Like that's a strange thing to work through, but it, it, we're there. Don't worry. Seeing the impact of drugs and alcohol on people on a daily basis should 
dramatically change the way you think about drugs and alcohol. If it doesn't, please get out of the field now. Because it's not that their experience is my experience. It's just that I could be them. And if I don't really grasp what that means and how my choices could influence whether that's true or not, then I am clueless. And I know that that's a pretty kind of bold statement, but I really think that if you see people suffer from the effects of alcohol use on a daily basis, how their relationships suffer, their work suffers, their body suffers, everything, their soul, like their whole spiritual connection, all of that, that should really make you question whether this is something you want to involve in your life or not. Because if, if it doesn't, then you probably think that you're somehow different or above or better than or immune to, and you're just not. Um, even if you have no genetic predisposition, you are not immune to the effects that drugs and alcohol have on you. And I went through kind of that period early on where I was like, I shouldn't drink because they don't get to drink. And like, (laughs) that's a whole weird thing that we've worked through that. Um, I was very young and now kind of being on the other side, when someone asks me like, Oh, are you sober? Are you in recovery? I say, no, I'm not sober. Um, I don't claim sobriety or to be in recovery. I have done a lot of family systems work around recovery um, and what it looks like to be involved in a family system that's substance use involved. But what I can tell you is there's a lot of very careful practice around any substances that I do or do not involve in my life. And there is a lot of conscious thought when I jump off of a telehealth like therapy appointment where someone has just been telling me about how their alcoholism is affecting everything and how, you know, they've got cirrhosis of the liver or they've got marital issues or they've got whatever that affects whether I go and have a glass of wine with dinner 20 minutes later. And I don't think that that's a bad thing, you know? So I do keep it in the forefront of my mind. I also know that like my client stories are not my story. It's not my stuff. It's for me to help them sort through and it's theirs. And, um, so now it's more about kind of what, what do I want that to look like? And, like I said, sometimes it can, two months can go by and I can be like, oh shit, like I haven't had a drink in like two months. And some other times it's like, I had a drink three times this week, but I have really rigid kind of rules around what my expectation is of myself if I'm drinking, right? There's like very clear, like moral codes of we're definitely not driving. We're, and I don't mean like I'm not driving if I've had three, I mean like I'm not driving period if I've been drinking and that also is a cultural thing because in Scotland you can't drink and drive period it's not you're allowed to right like so now it's just very intentional and it's only things that I enjoy um there are very few things I enjoy it's like a like I enjoy sours I enjoy like pinot noir that's it like um and like a cocktail every once in a while. And my favorite thing ever is now when you go to a restaurant, there's like non-alcoholic or low alcoholic options. And I can order a mocktail without feeling like I'm a pregnant or B at the kid's table. And I can have a pretty drink and have that experience and be on date night without having to consume alcohol to have that whole thing. Like I can just have a pretty drink and put it on Instagram and be like date night. (laughs) 
Hashtag not whack. You know, like those were some of the things I felt like I was missing out on, which is so dumb and, and it's so adaptable. Like you can make that into whatever you want. So I know that's not a very clear cut answer, but when my clients ask me, like, do you drink? I say, yeah. Um, and they're like, have you, you know, ever experienced problematic drinking? And I've, I've said, yeah, when I was younger, drinking did cause me a lot of problems. And I was abstinent from alcohol for two full years as a result. And that should in no way, like in any other therapeutic relationship, my story should in no way influence what you think is possible or healthy for you. Uh, yeah, you should probably quit for two years and see what happens. <laughs> That's what I think everyone should give it yeah. a little break and see what happens. So I think it's a, it's a neat experience. So now that you have this more empowered relationship with alcohol that's extremely intentional, to our gray area drinking listeners that are yeah. thinking about, you know, changing their relationship to alcohol, give us the big three. What are the what are the three bits of advice from Sam Hampson's experience that you can share with the listeners? Help empower them. Yeah, I think the first and foremost question that I would tell your, tell you to ask yourself is, have you ever gone alcohol-free for any extended period of time, meaning 30 days plus? Um, there's a lot of follow-up questions to that. If not, why not? If not, why not? <laughs> um, I would really want you to explore how much mind space alcohol takes up for you. If you're going into an event, do you think about whether alcohol is going to be there, what you're going to drink, what you're going to pregame, how you're going to get home, all of those things. And if so, could that mental energy be used up by something more productive or do you want it the way it is? And then I, I would really, the exercise for me that was helpful was what would, does an ideal and healthy relationship with alcohol look like for me? It's a big question. Paint that picture totally separate from what yours is totally separate from judgment. Just paint a picture of what a healthy relationship with alcohol would look like for you. The ideal and just start working towards it. And I think one of the things that people fail to consider is you might need complete distance from something to recreate a new relationship with it. Sometimes you got to take a break from a relationship and just start a new one with the same person. I know that's totally like people are like breaks lead to breakups. Like if you take a break, whatever, I don't care. <laughs> Sometimes you break up and then you decide to start a new relationship with the exact same person. That's fine. It's the same with substance. It's the same with any kind of process addiction. Like take some distance from it and then paint your picture and then start to reintroduce or recreate, reinvent that relationship. Because if you're going to try to adjust it from where it is now, you can do it, but it'll probably take longer. You're probably going to be more susceptible to your default or your autopilot and there's probably going to be a lot less intention around it. And if you take 30 plus days away from alcohol, you get the distance you need even like neurobiologically 
to be able to use some more of the part of your brain that would help you in planning a healthy relationship. Awesome. Well, Sam, <laughs> learned a little bit more about you today. <laughs> um, I'm really glad we could do this, and thanks for being so open and honest. and For sure. Sharing your story of empowerment with us today. Oh, thanks. This has been fun. One last question. Mm-hmm. We're all super passionate about Champagne Problems podcast. Yeah. What excites you the most about the conversations we're having? Whenever anyone, and I mean like just one human, is like, that helped me so much. I thought I was the only one. Yeah, me too. That to me is so helpful. And I've even had that experience on this podcast. Like when we've had guests on, I'm like, oh, that's something I've felt. I just never put that into words. And I think the connection in curiosity is huge. And that was a big motivator for me to be part of this podcast was just we know a lot of stuff about the impact of alcohol. We want to share that. And personally, I get a lot out of it when I know that someone has felt like we're addressing something that they've always wondered about or been concerned about. So if this is a place where, you know, you can even relate to 30 seconds worth of each episode, like, I think that that's magic. Might be worth it. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. All right, Sam, thanks for continuing to inspire me to be a better clinician. Thanks for being a part of this. Thank you. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.